I was told to go and deliver a death message. It was about four o'clock in the morning and I went to this door and I knocked on the door and knocked on the door. Eventually, a man came to the door, dishevelled, wearing a, a dressing gown. So I said, sit down, Mr. So-and-so, earlier. I'm here, I'm sorry, but I've got some really bad news for you. I'm very sorry to have to tell you, you've perhaps been expecting this, but your son, Robert, died in hospital today. And there was this pause and he said, the man said to me, we don't have a son called Rob. The wife said, John, there's something I've been meaning to tell you. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Crime Time Inc. And today we are so lucky to have a very special guest. Uh, an unusual guest, I might suggest, for a true crime podcast. But nonetheless, I'm really looking forward to having a chat with a chap that I've known for a few years now, quite a few years, through my work with LEAP, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. But this time I'm going to turn the tables because, Tom, you and I know that whenever we have dealings with, with the press, we're at their disposal when it comes to editing, when it comes to what finally appears. You get the paper the next day or read online the next day. And it's always a trepidation, heart-beating moment, wondering what they've actually printed after you've given them a few lines. Am I right? It's always the headline that hangs you, isn't it? It's always the headline that hangs you. And then when you phone back the reporter and, and remonstrate, say, well, that's the sub. That's the subs. Nothing to do with me, Gov. You always blame up the way. That's the answer. I've always blame upwards. Our guest today is Graham Mann of The, the Sun, crime reporter with The Sun. Graham, I've known you a few years. Tom's never met you, first time on here. So give us a wee bit of background about how you came to be a crime reporter with The Sun. Tell us a wee bit about yourself, if you will. It's been a long journey to get to the Scottish Sun. I started out in broadcasting briefly for about a year at a local television station, and that gave me a good platform to move into what I really wanted to do, which was newspaper journalism, because I'm a writer, essentially. That's the thing that I like doing most. And I got a job at the Ardbroath Herald as a junior reporter, and it was mainly football I was doing, following the red lifties and well, everything around the, the sporting scene in Angus. And then from there, I went to the East Cobright News, Airdrie Cobridge Advertiser, Clydebank Post, Renfrewshire Gazette. And I also worked in a magazine for a few years covering the construction industry. But then the opportunity came along to do some casual shifts at the Scottish Sun as a general reporter. And from there, I got a job full-time at the paper. And over the last few years, I've, I've began to focus more on the crime side of it. And leading to me getting the job as a crime reporter about two years ago now. Graham, see that, that history there, Bros, the East Cobride, Cobridge. Is that normal in the trade and as a journalist to move about? Or were you just not got on with anyone anywhere you went? No, I'd say that it was common maybe over the last few years that things have changed a little bit, partly because, as we're all aware, that the digital side of things has definitely had an impact on the traditional route through a journalistic career. There are young people coming out of university now who find it very difficult to get a toe in the ladder at that important level of working at a local newspaper because some of them don't exist anymore. And the ones who do get jobs in the local papers often find themselves stuck behind a computer screen all day they don't get to go out and do the beat the way that I used to do it and still do it knocking doors and getting to meet people face to face is something that is less prominent now than it used to be so there's a different route into journalism now I feel lucky and fortunate that I got to do it in a more traditional way 
That's interesting because, Tom, I'm sure you'll agree that's reflected in lots of walks of life and certainly in the police service. I reckon that our young cops now are very much less facing the public than we ever were in our day. I think that's right. Graham's introduction into the media is very like uh, a young policeman or a young detective, where you start with the small things and, and add up. But Graham, I was thinking about it, and I feel privileged tonight because I'm speaking to an endangered species. You're the equivalent of a snow leopard. There's not that many crime reporters left. And when I think about the crime reporters, the crime specialists I've met, over the long years, there's nobody there anymore. Where do you think the print media is actually going? Have we? Do you think we've hit bottom and we're going to stay here? Or do you think we've got further to go? It's hard to say. I uh, often find myself in courtrooms. I'm the only reporter there. And there are times when it becomes painfully obvious that the people who work at the court aren't used to sometimes, not all courts, but some courts, are a bit surprised and shocked when a journalist turns up because they're simply not used to dealing with them. And that can be quite negative, really, because it can be difficult to get information which you're perfectly entitled to at times. And it's no fault of theirs. It's just that culture that's become the norm, really. So it is sad because, to me, that's been a crucial part of my development and being able to become a crime reporter. I wouldn't be able to do it if I hadn't had that experience at a local level where you're going into court regularly and using shorthand and the other sort of traditional skills that you would expect from someone like myself. A big question mark for the media and for wider democracy because it's so important that councils, courts, local government, the national governments are covered and challenged at every step of the way. And if people like myself, as you say, are snow leopards of a dying breed, then it opens the door for quite a dark world, really. Something that concerns me, and I really don't know how much further we have to go. Yeah. Just as a point of reference, uh, when, when I started the, in the mid-80s, I was the, the press officer, the communications officer for Lothian Borders Police. And at that time, the sun was up and coming. But the daily record had a circulation of 750,000 copies a day. Yeah. 750,000 copies a day. Quite incredible. The World's End murders, which I was involved in very heavily over the years. And in 1977, our local Edinburgh newspaper, the Edinburgh Evening News, had a team of six investigative journalists. Now, that wasn't including the crime reporter. That was a team of six journalists on our local evening paper given over to the kind of investigations you're talking about. Yeah. It's absolutely remarkable how far it's fallen. The problem we really have, and you're right about the threat to democracy, because the problem we have is when there are no real journalists there, then by default, in comes social media. Without any filters, without any sanctions, without any standards. And so you get utter nonsense sometimes, complete nonsense pervading over social media and becoming the truth. Yeah, well, I do see that. Lots of information that's coming at you, thinking fast, and, and a lot of it isn't verified, a lot of it's nonsense. But at the same time, I guess I have to also put a little bit of defence of the internet in a way, because in another way of looking at it is that the, their audience has never been bigger. I know that the numbers of people buying newspapers is absolutely plummeted, but at the same time, we can see evidence that people are looking at news stories more than they've ever done. Literally millions are looking at these websites. I do exist in a world where I I follow these traditional methods to get stories, but at the same time, I also have to adapt to survive in this different ecosystem. And there is satisfaction to be had when you look at statistics and you can see that so many people are reading certain stories. This is it's easy to measure that. So although the numbers of people buying newspapers has plummeted, 
The number of people consuming news has never been greater. Obviously, there's different ways of looking at it. There's a couple of things that stick out there for me, Graham, and one of them is that we're on here just now. We're totally unregulated, if you like, other than normal models of communication. But we can basically explore anything we want to explore here between us, and it's a global audience that we have because anybody with the internet anywhere in the world can tap into this. And the final part of it for me is that a newspaper is famously fish supper wrapper the next day, whereas this is here for posterity. This is here for as long as the internet and whoever regulates these things decides to keep it here. There are two sides of the coin, but the main thing is that people now choose to consume news differently. The six o'clock news, for example, used to be the BBC's prime time news program. And now people can watch it 24-7 anywhere they want. So it's the consumer that's dictating how things are going to develop as we move on. I think one thing I was going to add to that was, I think where the problem maybe lies is when it comes to what you regard as slow journalism, where it takes time. So when you cover a court case, or if you have to sit in a council meeting and you have to, it's time consuming and it doesn't give that instant hit that, that you would get if you rattled some social media story together in half an hour and threw it online. So that fits into the sort of production line model. I'm not saying there isn't a place for it. There probably is, certainly. There's, there's an appetite for stories that are connected to showbiz and all that. But when it comes to the sort of work that I do, it just takes that bit longer to get the story. And that's where the danger lies, I think, in the power brokers, if you like, in the media who don't have the patience to let that happen. I'm lucky. I'm actually, this is the best job I've, I've ever been in, the most enjoyable job I've ever been in. And the job where I've been allowed to do my job, I've had the freedom to do my job like I have never had in any other job I've had in the past. I have to count my blessings, really, that I'm, I'm able to do this job and, and I'll continue to do it to the best of my ability, really. We skipped a wee bit there that I was interested in. When we do a talking, walking football podcast, we always ask our guests, what school did you go to? Because it's a football podcast, that goes down quite well. But we started with you getting your first job. What about before? Like, where are you from? What school did you go to? University? What did you do at uni? Did you always want to be a journalist, Graham? I wouldn't say I always wanted to be a journalist. Like most young men, I wanted to be had this fantasy idea that I was going to be a top footballer, <laughs> which obviously never came to fruition. I know guys that are still dreaming like that. I'm not sure I could even keep pace with the walking footballers these days. I went to a school called Hunter High, which is famous because that's where Ali McCoy also went to school. He was a couple of years older, good few years older than me, actually. There's a few others like Bobby Madden, the referee, he went there as well. My first sort of taste of journalism was as, was delivering the papers. And I used to love reading the papers before I delivered them. That was the, the thing that I used to love doing on a, a Sunday morning. I loved reading the contrast between the broadsheets and the tabloids. I used to enjoy that and I would pour over all the football reports. It was always a passion of mine. And then when I left school after... Messing around in factories to cut a long story short. I re-engaged with education after a few years in the wilderness and then went to Glasgow University. And it was really from there that I gave me the, the catapult into a career in journalism. Excellent. We've got a podcast, a football podcast with Chick Young featured on it. But I was chatting to him at a walking football event last week, the over 70s. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that. And he was talking about how journalism worked back in the day when he was a young reporter. And he was saying that he could lift the phone. In fact, 
he did lift the phone every morning and speak to Jock Steen or Scott Simon or whoever the opposite number happened to be. And they would give him the story or not, depending on, on the politics of it and how they felt about the back page. But that was how things worked back in the day. And I'm thinking about the police, exactly the same. Bosses that I had back in those days, in the, the 70s and 80s, had direct relationships with the head crime reporter at whatever, whether it was the Evening Times or the Scottish Sun or the Daily Record or whatever. And these people socialised together as well in the journalist club and various hostelries about Glasgow. And there was a real relationship there between senior police officers and reporters, like Chick was describing between football managers and sports reporters. And then, latterly in the police, or not long after that, everything went through our media department. Nobody was allowed to give any information out. Is that the way it is now? Do you have to go to a specialist department to get a quote from the police? Yeah, you've, you've got a press office. The police have probably got more press officers now than I've ever had. They work pretty much. I wouldn't say around the clock, but they're there all the time answering queries. Everything's done on the books, if you like. If you've got information you want to have a conversation about, that's possible, but it's not police officers generally that you speak to. It's press officers. So there's that step in between that never used to exist before where you would potentially go straight to a police officer in the past. But now it all really does have to go through the press office. So is that because of you? Is that where you started back in the day? I, I was a detective inspector, uh, Graham, and I got a call to go up and see the, my chief, uh, who at that time was Bill Sutherland. And he said to me, he was a man of few words, and he said to me, look, he said, We'll have to do better getting information out. He said, so what I want you to do, he said, I want you to come in here. I want you to be the information officer, but I want you to get as much information as you can out to the press. He said, 95% of what we do is not secret. He said, the public have a right to know what they're paying for. So get as much information out as you can, as long as you stay within the law. And he said, now there's going to be a lot of resistance to it. He said, you'll have a lot of resistance within the organization. Don't worry about it, and you'll make mistakes, but as long as you make mistakes with a good heart, I'll back you. Now, get on with it. And that was it. Remarkable, really. And that was literally it. It was later, it was, I think it was round about 2006, and I don't know why, but it was all closed down then, and it became very centralised. When I was the information officer, there was just me. I had clerical backup. But since information officers have got a lot bigger. And so they've taken a, a lot more on themselves and they've closed things down. From what I see, I don't think that's necessarily been an improvement. And I think it must be very difficult sometimes to for you guys. Is that possibly alongside the expansion of the media? Back in the day, we're talking about the newspapers with the circulation of three quarters of a million ton. And now we've got all these outlets, 24-hour outlets. Is that maybe not along the time that spin became a thing? that political parties were employing people with no skills other than being able to manipulate and realise what a story was and put a headline on it and spin it out to, to create whatever environment they wanted to create. I think you're right, Simon, in the 24-hour rolling media is a big issue. But I was given some very good advice when I went into the press office. And I, an old detective who was my boss and he'd been a, he'd been a pr professional footballer, so he, he used to use a lot of footballing analogies. I said, the police and the press, we use the same ball and we play on the same pitch, 
But the goals are in different places and the rules are different. And actually, since then, I've thought about that a lot. And that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. The police and the press do play on the same pitch and have the same interests. It's just that the goals and the rules are different. And as long as you respect that, and as long as you understand that, and as long as you've got confidence in dealing with that, then I think your relationship can be good. Graham, let's look at major investigations. I hinted at it earlier on. Let's look at a murder inquiry that launches now. There's a body discovered, whatever it is. And, and although 97% of murders are solved straightforward, we do get whodunits all the time. We get protracted inquiries. We get inquiries of all different kinds. Now, Tom's talking there about being on the same pitch, which we all are, and the ball's the same for everyone. What are you looking for as the credit? I take it you would be sent to the town, the village, the city, wherever it is, if it's local in Scotland, to cover the story. What is your angle on it then? We're looking to investigate it. Would you touch base with the police officers at that stage as well? You would put in a general inquiry if you knew that something was live, something was unfolding. So you would simply say that we understand that there's something happening at this location. Police are there. And you might have had a phone call about it from a member of the public. So you might already have a little bit of info before you go to the police. And you might even actually have more information sometimes than, than the police do, if, depending on who picks the phone up yeah. to you. We're always keen to establish as quickly as possible when there's a, an incident or, or a murder. We're trying to figure out who is involved in it because depending on who it is, is going to dictate how much interest there is in it for, for us. If it's, say, for example, we know that there's known criminals involved in it, then it, obviously that elevates it to a more interesting level. If it's unknown people who have had no profile in the public at all, it becomes more difficult to report in a way because it's hard to get your teeth into it. So you're looking for that initial bit of information or even guidance you might get from the police. They might not give you something on the record, but they might give you certain guidance about say, the information that you've that you put to them about what you, you're told that it relates to. But yeah, then the next thing is to get down to the scene as quickly as possible because you'll probably get more information down there than you will from the police press office. Just almost like the police, you're going to be banging doors. You're going to be asking people in the street. You're going to be getting a flavour of what the area is like. You might even already know who lives in the street if it's a, an area that's known as a criminal hotspot. So those are the sort of things you're looking at in the first blush of, of something breaking. Let me ask you a question then, Graham. Do you put a suit and shirt and tie on and walk to the locus and walk in as if you're a detective? Have you ever done that? Because you had a predecessor who worked on the other side of the city and that was his MO at the serious crimes. To be honest, I always feel as though you don't want to look like a reporter because you stand out like a sore thumb and people might clam up and don't talk yeah. to you because they might have a preference for which newspaper they read or you've always got to be honest with people. So whenever anyone asks, I'll always tell them straight away. If someone asks, I'm a reporter. Quite often when I go to a crime scene, if there's police standing at the locus, I'll approach them straight away and let them know who I am because I don't want them to think I'm being sneaky. That's not how I operate. But I do like to look like an ordinary member of the public. I don't know if I pull it off that often, but I just like to be like your man in the street. That's essentially what I am. I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm a man in the street. I'm the eyes and the ears of, of a guy anywhere else. We have a mutual friend, Tom and I, Alan Nicol, who wrote a book about Sheila Garvey. I don't know if you know the story, Graham. It was back in the 70s and it was it was a murder. She was convicted of murder up in the northeast. 
up in Stonehaven area. And the big thing about the whole incident in his book that he's written about it was really she was convicted by the media, by the press, because that's all we had back in those days. So, Tom, that's another side of this widespread news platforms that we have now, is that people aren't reliant on the 6 o'clock news and the, the newspaper of choice in the morning. They've now got lots of avenues of all that false information as well, of course, and lots of people with agendas putting things out there on social media, etc. Yeah, I think winding it back a bit, you were talking about informal relationships. When you didn't respect the fact that the rules and the goals were different, uh, to take back the old analogy, it could lead to problems. And the one that sticks in my mind and always has stuck in my mind is the Bible John investigation, which was driven by the press. And so much so that the police in that period ended up searching for a bogeyman who in all probability didn't exist. You've got to watch that. But I'll tell you what I was going to say. I was struck by a recent investigation. I don't know if you remember it, where a woman fell into a river and disappeared just recently down south. And it wasn't so much pressure intrusion then. There seemed to be groups of vigilantes who appeared at that locus and were patrolling the streets and were acting in all sorts of very bizarre ways and impeding the investigation, quite honestly. The woman herself was quite photogenic. She was clearly a, a troubled young woman. And I think it just caught the attention. And these people came from far and wide, almost like ghouls, to feast on the disaster there. If I remember correctly, the police actually put a cordon around the whole area to chase them away. Now, that's a relatively modern uh, phenomena. I never experienced that. We certainly didn't get that in any of the major investigations we had in Lothian and Borders in my day. So that's another factor of social media, I would suggest. One also into the mix, Graham, before I ask you your thoughts on it, was Dundee the other night. And this is not the first time it's happened. Uh, where youngsters, some as young as eight, it's been reported, if you can believe what you read in the press, of course. Social media can get them organised on their WhatsApps or whatever. They can get out. And they're causing real havoc in the city of Dundee. We had riot police on the streets the other night in Dundee. Yeah, things like TikTok is one of the ones that you'll hear mentioned a lot. And with people video things and they, they broadcast things live. The incident Tom was discussing there down in England was a good example of that where people were turning up and filming it and feeding their own followers. So essentially you've got people who would otherwise just be ordinary folk who, if you look at their online profiles, they've got sometimes hundreds of thousands of followers who are watching their every move. And it, it's bizarre to me. I, I don't understand that either. I can see the appeal in some instances, but I don't do it. I don't. I have no interest in that side of it. I'm, I'm very much the traditional journalist. It's, it's just a, a part of the modern landscape that we all have to contend with now, I'm afraid, and for good or ill. Yeah, I, th I think it's a part of people wanting to be part of the story. They're, they're actually wanting to write themselves into the script. Funnily enough, Graham, when I said it was a new phenomenon, I've written a book about the very famous case, the Ruxton murders in 1935, where dismembered body parts were found down at the little border town of Muffet. And the day following that, in 1935, remember, the day following that, there were sharabangs and buses appeared, trains, people spilled out from Edinburgh and Glasgow 
to come and ostensibly help the police by looking for body parts. And they fanned out over the moors and found old legs of sheep and deer and all sorts. And of course, joyously returned them to the police station at Moffat, who ended up with a huge pile of old bones. Perhaps we're wrong to say it's a completely new phenomenon. It does happen if the press attention's right. Yeah, that's true. But I'm appalled, actually, at some of the things that I do see on TikTok. I find it staggering that some of these people that you've earlier described as girls do have what you would term followers, people who seem to revel in, in their sort of crazy behaviour at these crime scenes and things like that. And, and the conspiracy theories that are always there or thereabouts, aren't they? And the longer that, that woman hadn't been found because of where she'd fallen in and the, the currents and whatnot, she wasn't found for some time. And during that period, we had all sorts of conspiracies being put forward. Immediately attract a whole band of people on board. Graham, Sun Reporter, man's up. What do you think of that? Friends. Yeah, that's a kind of, I could be a subby there, couldn't I? Or Sun Chime Reporter tells the truth. Yeah, that would be a shot. That, that would be a first exclusive. Graham, can I just interject to say you don't have much to worry about. The last, the last capture Simon made was about 1979. You're all right. <laughs> it was a good breach, though. It was a good breach. It's not true what they say. It was nine, not seven. Actually, that's a true story. I was a probationer and I was sent to the school to do some... The school was across the road from the police station, thankfully, down in Campbelltown. And I was sent across the road to do some community, whatever, talk to the primary sevens or whatever it was, and went over in uniform, of course. And then afterwards, I got mobbed by all these kids and whatnot. I later found out it was all the young ones that had no daddy. Daddy had buggered off, and they were the ones that were wanted to talk to me and all that. And one wee girl said, can I see your handcuffs? Give <laughs> them my handcuffs. And they were rat egg, Graham. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they would close right tight. They would go to zero. So she put it on on her wrist. And she's wrangling up out in front of her pals. And that was all very funny until I went to find my key. <laughs> and I'd left my keys lying in the office, my car keys with my handcuff key on it. So I had to cross the road, Castle Hill in Campbelltown, with this wee girl by the hand with her handcuffs. <laughs> so you run it far wrong, Tom. That would be about 1979. And, and, and that, Graham, is the last arrest he made. <laughs> And the best. It was the only. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So, so you're well warned, Graham, but what I wanted to ask you about was criminals. Because, like the police, I'm just, it's only dawning on me, Tom, how much the crime reporter's life has it, got lots of parallels with the life of a detective working in a division. So, Graham, tell us about your interaction with some of Scotland's top current criminals just now. I've seen some of your stories talking about some of the, the problems that we have now. The biggest thing recently has been connected to the EncroChat uh, mobile phone networks that have been used by criminals. These phones where they thought that they couldn't be hacked into by the authorities and they quickly found out that wasn't the case and now they're all paying the price for it. These encrypted phones that they basically had been hacked into by the French and Dutch authorities. And it's opened up a treasure trove of information, which has resulted in, actually, in Scotland, there's dozens of guys now either in jail already or who are facing trials in the near future. You could see them locked up for a very long time. And it's opened 
the eyes of the world into this international network, really, of criminals. Although they're based in Scotland, a lot of these guys, their, their tentacles extend all around the world to South America, Central America, to the Gulf. It's, it's staggering, actually, the scale of these operations. And tracking that, the EncroChat phones has seen stories about these guys and it come thick and fast and there's more to come. Do you ever go and maybe not speak to these guys once they've been charged and in custody and whatnot, but do you have informants within that world? Do you go and speak to guys? On occasion, you will get a phone call from a disgruntled prisoner who isn't happy at the coverage he's getting in the newspapers. It comes from all over, really. And some you'll hear from for a little while and they'll provide you with useful information and then they'll vanish, they'll disappear off the radar and you don't hear from them again. Others will pop up once and that's it. So it varies. Sounds very much like the same relationship as we have with informants, uh, Graham, in that very few of them do not have a motive, an ulterior motive. They're either looking to score points or looking to distract or looking to do something. You very seldom get an informant coming forward with information I don't mean an ordinary member of the public who's seen something, a criminal informant. You've got to be very careful about their motivation in case you end up inadvertently acting on their behalf. Coming back to what you said a minute ago, Simon, in terms of the attributes of a good detective and a crime reporter, you're absolutely right. And I've said this, I knew some excellent crime reporters in my time. And I said to some of them, you would make a good detective. Because they, they were observant, they were good communicators, they were intuitive, they, they were nosy people. Liked a good drink. According to people I know in the press, all these days are gone. And we, you said you were absolutely right. They would go down to the pub at two o'clock and come back at five o'clock and write up their stories. I'm told that is long gone. The advent of computerization completely finished that, Graham. You were a generation too late, my boy. I think it was. I think I just caught the, the coattails on it. It's not something that happens that often now. We had a case in Govan where we got a phone call, an anonymous phone call made to Pitt Street, I think, to headquarters that there was guns, specific guns, I can't remember what, in a house in a, an area of Govan called Chukar Hill. So, unfortunately, by this time, things had changed and normally one of us would have gone up and chapped the door and taken the gun off somewhere. But that couldn't happen laterally in the police. The balloon went up, as we would describe it. Firearms units called out and the support unit, and the traffic, because it was a whole palaver to seal off the area and get maps. And You've no idea how long it would take to go in and search a house or whatever was going to happen. And maybe four or five hours later, that did happen. And we got in the house and there was nothing there. But the guy that was in the house with the woman had warrants for him all over the place. So he was arrested. And that was the result of it, all that manpower and resources. If I remember right, it was a Friday night as well, so it was a bit of a nightmare. But we later discovered that the anonymous phone call that had come in had been her ex-boyfriend, who had been in prison. And he had just got out that day after a six-month stint or whatever and discovered that she was shacked up with this other guy. So how do you get rid of him without any fisticuffs taking place? I'll just phone Strathclyde Police and they'll sort that out for me. I can think of one interesting call I got recently from someone who had claimed that he'd witnessed this notorious prisoner uh, being caught in his cell with drugs. And that this sparked a violent reaction and that uh, it took about six prison officers to quell the guy. He kicked off 
And as he described it, this guy had been picked up in Superman down the hall and into solitary and thrown into the cell. And as he was telling me this, he was explaining that he was one of the most notorious guys in the, the prison system. He was feared, terrified. Everyone was scared stiff. But this guy, and he, didn't, he was so volatile, he didn't know what he was going to do next. I got enough detail of him from when it happened, the, the location, etc., And then obviously went to the appropriate places to make sure that what he was telling me was accurate. And lo and behold, it, it was. And it was incredibly accurate. Every little detail almost was to a T. And then, so we did the story about this guy being one of the most notorious guys in the jail. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a message off this person saying, who's this on the phone? I looked back, it was the guy who had been Superman down the halls. It was him that had phoned the tip in. (laughs) And he gave himself away in that moment and realised, hold on, he didn't realise it was me that he was speaking to. He got his wires crossed. That's the classic fire razor's trick. (laughs) These people were fire razors and they were always there. They were always at the location of the fire. And they were always the people who had phoned the fire service and and wanted to speak to the press. When you started to tell the story, I got a sense of how it was going to end. Graham, on the assumption that people listen to this, it may <laughs> the time to come, and especially some former colleagues, etc. Uh, I think we do get quite a few policemen coming on and asking questions and whatnot. What would your message be that would help crime reporters, help the police? Because we're all in the same park, remember? It's a tough one, really. In a way, I think that the one thing that we hear consistently is actually the plight of police Scotland at the moment and, and this really deep sense of, of low morale across the force is well documented and it's been acknowledged at a high level that, that there are problems. It's a wee bit like, I think Tom had touched on this earlier, where when I look over my shoulder to see who's coming behind me in a journalistic sense, I sometimes I'm a little bit worried about that. I don't mean that in a disparaging way to young reporters. There's a lot of really top-notch young reporters around. The same would apply to young police officers. But I do worry about when the veterans leave, the older experienced guys leave, we have to make sure that there's a strong contingent who are properly trained, properly prepared, but for what is a very difficult frontline job in the police. What I do is nowhere near as dangerous or as challenging as what a lot of the frontline courts have to deal with. And I have total respect for them for putting themselves in danger the way they do. And I just think it's so important that they're given the right support. And that's really the message that, that I would give to them because when you do my job, you appreciate the work that the frontline guys do up close. You just get a glimpse into that world. It's vital that the authorities, that the government and everyone doesn't lose sight of that and, and really does their best to, to make the Police Scotland as strong as it should be and the public deserve. I'm sure Mr. Wood's got a view on that as well. Well, I'm still in touch with quite a lot of serving officers and uh, to be honest, there have been the budgets have been salami sliced now for years, for the 10 years that Police Scotland has been in existence and they're now having to do an awful lot more with an awful lot less. And the rise in cybercrime, you talked about that encrypted criminal network, which I find fascinating. It reminds me of the when a few years ago we managed to get into some of the extreme pornography sites and there was hundreds of people then identified as accessing the most serious level of porn. All of that's going on, but cybercrime now is so prevalent that I was watching the, the I think, Commissioner of the Met, uh, Mark Rowley, was saying there that he reckons that 
50% of all crime is online now. If you've become a victim of crime, there's a very good chance. If we, our group here sitting here talking today, if we become victims of crime, there is a very good chance it'll be online. And of course, that requires all sorts of specialist skills to intervene in that. And so that's drawing off tremendous numbers of police officers. And as a result of that, you don't have a patrol profile anymore. And Simon and I know that if you're going to learn the trade of policing, then you have to have that experience on the street. You have to have that grounding. And the trouble is, my fear is that more and more young officers are not getting that grounding, not getting that chance to learn, and are being quickly shoved into these specialist departments. And it is a, a major concern. As you were saying there, Graham, again, the parallels. I had a story last year about walking football, I think. Uh, I think it was the Glasgow paper. And uh, a reporter was coming out to see us and get some pictures. The snapper, I think, was... No, I think he was freelance as well. But the reporter that came was uh, an intern, if that's the right term. She was a lovely girl. She was actually doing a degree, I think, in journalism or something similar, but would sent out to cover the story on an ad hoc basis. She'd get paid as she goes if she's sent out for a story. A kind of agency reporter, if you like. And that seems to be more and more the norm. And then the police, there's this big experience gap now, Tom, that I find whenever I interact, that we seem to have neglected the recruitment for a number of years. And all the guys that were recruited at my time in the late 70s and 80s have now retired. And there's a big gap in there. And we're asking youngsters to pick up the mantle without the training and mentorship that we enjoyed as young cops back in the day. I, and I, I think that's about to get worse. It'll get worse before it gets better, Simon, because my understanding is just now they're looking at a change to the pension provisions, which meant that people could retire and take their pension at 25 years service. You're going to get an exodus. There's already a provision if you're over 50, you can do that. But I think that's called the McLeod remedy or something like that. But there's now a move to suggest you can retire at 25 years service. Now, the kind of people who will be retiring will be the sergeants, the inspectors who are the very backbone of the kind of standards you're expecting and very senior cops. And when you look at some of the recent catastrophes in policing, particularly down in the Metropolitan Police, these two firearms officers, one was a rapist and the other was a murderer. If you backtrack that a bit, that there's been a huge death of firearms officers in the Met. They've been desperate to get people in because of all the commitments they've got, guarding embassies and all the rest of it. They've short circuited the system, both of vetting and recruiting and of training. And this is what happens when you do that. Graham, are you aware of the probationary period that police officers serve? Yeah. And that probationary period was always mentored during that two years, Tom, and you can be gotten rid of at any time in that first two years. It's much more difficult after your two years are in and you've, you've come out of your probationary period. But that two years to me, in fact, it started on day one at Tully Allen Police College, Tom, and you got people shouting in your face, sergeants shouting at you and screaming at you. You would go out of your bed at five in the morning to go for a run or be on the parade ground. They tried to break you. That's how we looked at it at the time. And they did break at least half of my course disappeared during the first two weeks because they couldn't take it. Or some of them responded and said, who are you talking to? Not the right attitude, not the right mentality, not the right temperament to be a police officer. 
and they were sifted out very quickly. And during that two years, they were sifted out again, Tom, by their mentor corp. Because they were put into all kinds of situations, Graham, that just occur to a police officer. You don't go looking for them. They just happen in front of you. You deal with honest, decent members of the public most of the time. And you have to behave like a police officer. And you deal with the absolute scum of the earth some of the time. And you have to deal with the other side of being a police officer. And you have to respect people's freedoms. You have to respect, uh, you have to use reasonable force that we've talked about on other podcasts. And that system of vetting is what Tom, I think, is referring to there. That the Met had lost at some stage. Whether they're getting it back or not, I don't know. But those senior cops that we don't have anymore and sergeants were really the eyes and ears to identify people that weren't going to make it. It used to be called Regulation 12. They were unlikely to become a good and efficient police officer. One of my jobs was actually to decide on Regulation 12s. And, and it, was a, it was a difficult thing to do. But you know what? I found that when you actually sat down with these young people and said, look, this is not working out and we really can't have it, most of them were relieved because they knew themselves they weren't making it. And a lot of them were frightened. I got a letter from the parent of one a young woman who was regulation 12 said, thank you very much for bringing this to a conclusion because our girl was terrified every time she was going to go out on a shift. Now, you can't live like that. Not everybody's marked out to be a police officer and there's no shame in that. It's a particular kind of job and some people just don't have it. I think that's the balance of the probationary period, that it wasn't just for the police to decide if you were going to become a police officer. It was for you to decide if you wanted to be a police officer, if it was the right fit for you, because it has to be. What you're saying there is right, and to a lesser extent, there are things that I have to do in my job that induce anxiety, if you want to call it that. Nobody wants to go to a door where someone's experienced tragedy. That's part of the job and you don't want to do it. Who, who wants to do that? No one wants to do that, but it is part of the job. You, you're duty-bound in a way to go to someone's door if you're going to be writing about them, if they're going to appear the paper the next day would be wrong. It doesn't seem like that to people at the time. They, they often see it as an intrusion, understandably. But really, you do have a duty to, to give them the opportunity, even if their opportunity is to tell you to to go away and they don't want to speak to me. He used to call it the death knock. I remember when I started in the press office, one of the first things I did was I was asked if I'd go up and spend a, a week with the local newspaper just to see how the newspaper worked. And I really enjoyed it. And it was a revelation to me, actually, to see about deadlines and all the rest of it. And the first thing they did when I turned up to do a shift with the reporters was they sent me out in a death knock. And the idea was that somebody had been killed and you had to go out and somebody managed to get a photograph with what you were looking for was a photograph of the person. It was a very unpleasant experience because before that, I'd done that many times, gone to doors of people whose relatives had died, but I always had a legitimate reason to be there and I always had a warrant card and it was all the difference in the world and it, it made me think long and hard just about the jobs that reporters had to do. Big Stuart Brown used to call it fronting up, Graham. That's what he used to say. One thing I would say is that more often than not, people are respectful. Even in the most harrowing circumstances, people tend to remain polite and they might forcefully tell you to go away. But you immediately have to respect their position on that. But there are times as well where the opposite happens. And I can remember one of the first ones that I did when I was a young lad 
younger reporter in Clyde Bank. And it was maybe one of the first times that I'd had to go to someone's door. And needless to say, you're more anxious when, you, when you've never done it before. So I had gone to the door and as I approached the house, the door was slightly open. And I thought, oh no, this is makes me, I don't know why, but it just felt even more awkward. That the door was half open and I thought, what am I going to find? Anyway, I went up and just as I was about to chat, the door flew open and the, the person said, it's you, come in, sit down. Do you want a cup of tea? I just walked in the door with my notepad in my hand. We were expecting you. <laughs> I'm surprised it's taking you so long. And they were, it was a local family. It was in the Erdry, actually. It wasn't Clyde Bank. It was in the Erdry. And they, were, they couldn't wait for me to turn up. And, and it was because they wanted to pay tribute to their, their loved one. There had been no crime committee. This was a, it was a car crash, I think, a tragedy. But they, they were desperate to share their story and who this person was. They knew that the local newspaper could give them that platform. If we hadn't turned up, they would probably have been on the phone about it. And it was surprising to me. But in the end, it was therapeutic as well for the, the family involved. Yeah, and I suppose when you think about it, Graham, it's, a, it's an affirmation of the importance of the person's life. And that's how they would see it. And it's the thing we talk about as a police officer, that you never know what's behind the door when the door opens. It could have been the exact opposite. It could have been someone chasing you out uh, down the street. You just, it's the attraction of the job, I think, for a lot of us. And you just have to be prepared. You'd be on your toes and have a pair of trainers <laughs> at the ready. <laughs> I think you've done this a real service here. Usually towards the end of Crime Timing, we explain some of the terms that were used because there's jargon and whatnot that we slip into. And you've done it here. There'll be a lot of police officers listening to this, hopefully someday. And they'll be looking up their manuals, they'll be phoning their sergeant, they'll be asking old cops when you're talking about chapping doors and going house to house. It's something that the police used to do a lifetime ago. In fact, it was our bread and butter of every investigation. It used to be a bugbear of mine that every crime you need to chap the doors. That's where the information is. It's great to hear that reporters are now doing it instead of police officers. It's so important to go to the source of whatever it's happening. And to me, that's the attraction of the job. The idea that you, would, you wouldn't want to go when something's breaking. You're in the wrong job if you, if you don't want to be there. Is there still a, a curtain twitcher in every street? They'll say there will be and always will be. Yeah, there definitely is. Tom, you probably are one. Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do much good. There's nothing much to see when you twitch the curtains where I am. But the modern thing now, of course, is... CCTV, the people who used to be curtain twitchers, you usually find their houses are, are surrounded by CCTV systems. And of course, in terms of... Ring doorbells. Yeah, that's right, the ring doorbells. And in terms of investigation, these are, these are fantastic tools. I remember when I worked down in one of the rough areas of Detective Sarge, there was a lot of stabbings and slashings at that time. And the only place that was open 24 hours a day was a local garage, a filling station. But it was funny because people who'd been involved in violence or confrontation afterwards, they always made for the filling station to get a snack or food or something. And the number of times we got evidence from the CCTV cameras was unbelievable. It was almost like a magnetic pull towards this 24-hour filling station. It was funny. Graham, I'm, I'm going to drop you in it now. I'm going to put you on the spot because we only just, Tom and I only just discussed this before uh, we came on here. And uh, something we spoke about was chatting to our guests specifically and ask them to tell us a story or, in your case, something you've covered, whatever it might be over the years, 
that was defining for you, that was when the penny dropped, it's when things changed and you realized you knew what all this was about, or you switched and thought, that's a life changer, that's a career changer for me right there. Can you think of anything? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Off the top of your head, what kind of defined journalism for you? While you're thinking about it, I'll ask Tom the same question. I'm interested in these turning points because if you speak to anybody who's had a career in policing or a career in journalism, you usually find out that there's some incident or some influence uh, very early on in their careers which actually steered them in a particular direction, which made them think and made them consider as they went forward. And I was struck by Graham's story there from Airdrie about knocking the door and the family welcoming him in, not as an intruder, but as someone who is there to pay homage or pay tribute to their relative who's been killed. And that's a, it's a very, a very interesting point. I suppose one of my early ones was I was told to go and deliver a death message. It was about four o'clock in the morning and I was on a foot beat and I delivered this death message. And I went to this door and I knocked on the door and knocked on the door. Eventually, a man came to the door, disheveled, wearing a, a dressing gown. Come, come in, come in. And I, I was about 19 years old and I said, right, no, death messages is what you've got to do. So I said, sit down, Mr. So-and-so, really, I'm here, I'm sorry, but I've got some really bad news for you. And, and then just then his wife appears. And she comes in, I said, please come in and sit down. And I'd been told on the radio that this death message would be expected. Uh, so we're obviously done. And I said, look, I'm very sorry to have to tell you, you've perhaps been expecting this, but your son, Robert, died in hospital today. And there was this pause. And he said, the man said to me, we don't have a son called Robert. <laughs> here I am, I've got the wrong address. And I said, I'm really sorry, I'll have to check with operations. I've so sorry to woken you up with the terrible thing. And just then, in a very small voice, and I can only describe it as a small voice, the wife said, John, there's something I've been meaning to tell you. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll leave you to sit and have a chat about this. I'll go and make you a cup of tea. So I went shot through the kitchen and left them. And as it turned out, what had happened was the woman had a very seriously disabled child in her teens who had been in long-term care. And she'd met her husband slightly later in life and hadn't found the opportunity to speak to him about it. He knew nothing about it. And every week for years, 30 years, this woman had been going to visit the laddie who was in, in a vegetative state in a long-term hospital. So there was two lessons for me there and I'll never forget is one was there's no such thing as a routine death message. No such thing. And the second thing I always told young cops was the first thing to do when you join the police is learn how to make a good cup of tea. That applies to journalism as well. <laughs> I need to tell you a quick story then because of that cup of tea. Now listen, it's not uh, about Paul McCartney, is it? Don't tell me it's not about Paul McCartney. Funny you should mention that. Oh, funny no. you should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, me Paul and I, He's got a new single out today with his old band, The Beatles, by the way. This is quite close to Paul McCartney because it was in Campbelltown. Sorry, and I was a young cop. And me and the sergeant went to the lollipop man's house, Archie, whose wife had passed away a, a couple of weeks before. And he was giving up his lollipop stick and we had to go and get his stuff and whatnot. So we went to the house, deadly silent, old Archie. We all knew him because he was a lollipop man. And he said to us, do you want a wee cup of tea, lads? And we both said, oh, yeah, that would be great. That would be great. 
So off he went to the kitchen, five minutes past, ten minutes past, and Sergeant Alistair Barnett said to me, go and see if he's okay, go in the kitchen, make sure he's all right. So I went away into the kitchen, and Archie was standing in his kitchen, just crying, tears rolling down his face, just upset. And uh, I said to him, Archie, you all right? You need a hand. And he said, I've got no idea where the tea is or anything is. He had never done anything like that. He'd been, been married for 50 or 60 years, didn't have the wherewithal. And he died not long after that either, which is often the case. But the cup of tea prompted that story from me. And I was only months in the jobs. And they are quite defining, these things. It's true what Tom says. They're much more profound when you're a young man and you realise what's going on in the world. Graham, you've had plenty of time. you got something for it. I think when I realised I'd arrived at the Scottish Sun, this is the story that really uh, I always think of that made me think I finally made it. It was started off, it actually was a sad story that we had been covering for quite a long time, over several months, and it ended in tragedy. I had to go to the funeral, which is something that happens every so often. It's like, like a doorknock where you have to go along and listen to what happens at the funeral and the editor was really desperate that, that we made sure we didn't miss that because we had covered the story for so long. I don't want to go into details about the people involved in it, but needless to say, it was absolutely hammered home to us that we had to go to this funeral. It was several hundred miles away. So off I went, set off early in the morning, thinking about it as I went, because I'd been engaged with the story quite for quite a long time. So there was an emotional side to it as well. I'm not saying I was upset as the people who were immediately affected, but obviously you are, you do build up an emotional connection to the story and the people involved. Uh, so I sat in on the, the funeral, switched my phone off as you would do. And then when I came out about one o'clock, something like that, switched my phone on and fully expected to just phone the news desk and tell them that I would be filing copy in the next hour or so. But when I switched my phone back on, there was about 20 missed calls. I'm thinking, what, what's going on here? I know they were, they wanted the story, but they can't be that desperate. So eventually I, I phoned in and the first thing the news editor said was, I said, that's the funeral just finished. He said, forget the funeral. I said, what do you mean forget the funeral? He said, I want you to go to Dingwall. I said, Dingwall? What do you want me to go there for? And he said, there's a cow that wears a bra. You need to find this cow. The interest in the, the funeral died immediately when this cow with a bra appeared. Out of nowhere. So I spent the next six hours driving around the highlands trying to find this cow with a brow on and it was getting dark. And the pressure was enormous. The, the, every 20 minutes the phone was going, have you found it? Have you found it? <laughs> so I had, eventually I managed to get a hold of the farmer whose cow it was and he was like on the other side of the country. He was like a wee old 100 miles away. The most cheerful guy ever. And he said, I'll, I'll be back about, in about an hour and a half. Give me an hour and a half. And clearly it's getting dark. So he said, meet me here. So we met, we met him in this farmyard, in this barn. And I had the photographer with us. And then he goes, and he took us into the barn. And there was this cow. We never had the bra on. Where's the bra? The snuffle saying, get the bra. So the guy went back in the house and get this bra on, put this bra on this cow. And his wife came out, it was, it was one of her old bras and we had to have a chat with her and all that. What size was it? They wanted to know everything. Where was it made? What made? Was it Mark's suspensers? <laughs> all this kind of stuff. But eventually we got this cow posed up with a bra and it ended up, it was a front page story the next day. But it took hours, it was pitch black. 
And I think just before I left, the farmer said to the farmer, see, before I go, you don't have a horse to wear suspenders and anything like that, do you? <laughs> but anyway, the reason I had the brow one was because it, it had a problem with, with milking its young. So this was a way, this was a, an invention. He'd used one of his wife's brads to protect this cow's others. But it was a great son story. They loved it. So that gives you a little glimpse into what it's like working at the, the Scottish Sunders. <laughs> I don't do so much of that now because I'm on the crime beat, but back then it was everything where just went. Graham, I wish you all the luck in the future. I don't know where you go from being crime reporter at the Sun. I'm not sure what the next steps could be, but I'm sure there's... I think I've got a little bit of more time in, the, in this gig for a wee while yet, so I'm quite content here. I think I work at the best newspaper. Obviously, I'm biased. Of course. But I'm confident that despite the difficulties that the media industry faces, that we're in good hands here at the Scottish Sun. We've got a really good team and we are dedicated to public interest journalism, as well as all the colour and fun. Of course. It goes with the tabloid newspapers. Yeah, some of the causes that you support, they're fantastic. Yeah, that's right. What yeah. you do for charities and whatnot. Keep up the good work then, Graham. Graham, it's been, it's been lovely to talk to you and I've, en I've enjoyed your stories and I wish you very well. I wish you all the best. All the best, Graham. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Cheers. Next time on Crime Time, Inc. A Pesasolito was one of your, if not your, greatest chief constables in Glasgow. And what I found was a remarkable story which spans from choir boy to James Bond and everything in between. But amongst the gangs that roved about Sheffield at that time were one of the generations of the Peaky Blinders, the famous Peaky Blinders. 1931, he arrives in Glasgow and inherits this problem. Running through Glasgow at that time were a number of enormous and very imposing and violent gangs. Some of them were sectarian gangs like the Billy Boys and others were territorial gangs. And what Persisilito said was, no, this is not good enough. We've got to use fingerprints and I'm going to invest in his fingerprint bureau and the expertise. And Bertie Hammond was one of the foremost exponents of fingerprints in the world. In 1934, he attended an international policing conference in Chicago, where he meets and gets on very well with a man called J. Edgar Hoover. Strathclyde police always had a special relationship with the FBI. And I could never figure out why that was, but I know now it was because of a personal friendship between Tessa Silito and J. Edgar Hoover. And in 1935, you see this coming into action with the finding of body parts down in the tiny Dumfrieshire town of Muffet. And this, of course, is the famous Ruxton murder. 